Creative Babble. You may remember Sharon McConnell Dickerson from episode eight titled The Sculptor. You know, sculpting is the way I access um, a lost sense. It is the vehicle through which I access a lost sense, my sight. You know, the blind artist who casted the faces of the dying blues musicians? When we first recorded that episode back in season one, she told me a story that quite frankly was hard to believe. It sounded like something out of a movie. It's one of the most sadistic con artist stories I've ever heard. And warning, this episode is pretty dark, so if you don't like that kind of stuff, you've been warned. I had to have Sharon back to tell you the story about her friend, Bo Eisler. We'll get to the con artist part of the story eventually, don't worry. But first, I have to tell you about Sharon and Bo. Let's pick the story back up when we last met Sharon. It was 1996, and Sharon started to suddenly lose her vision to an aggressive autoimmune disease. She could still see, but she had to quit her job and leave her old life behind. She underwent numerous surgeries to try to save her vision, but as time passed, her vision rapidly faded away. So what would you choose as the last thing you'd ever want to see if your vision was slipping into complete darkness? Sharon chose turquoise jewelry, golden sunsets, green and red chilies, and adobe everything. She moved to the Southwest Desert in Santa Fe, New Mexico. New Mexico's license plate reads, The Land of Enchantment. And that's one of the reasons why Sharon wanted to move there. This is where she met Bo Eisler. Bo owned a small shop selling high-end cowboy couture hand-tooled western belts, pottery, jewelry, you know, that kind of stuff. I um, came into his store, East West Trading Company. We just got talking and I, of course, was um, just, I had to look around at all these beautiful things and I had a lot more vision back then. Today, Sharon's vision is almost completely gone. But back then, she could still see and get around independently without anyone actually suspecting she had a vision problem. When I met him, I did not walk with the use of a cane or a guide dog. Although my vision was impaired, I couldn't drive or anything like that. So I was able to look around at all these beautiful things and I found a pair of ruby colored, patent leather, vintage boots that just were the coolest boots ever. Bo approached her and said, You know, those we, I've had those there for so long, he said, but nobody's had the small enough feet to fit in those. And I said, well, you know, they look about my size. Sharon and Bo quickly became friends. He introduced me to blues music. And it, I, just, I just loved it. And then I realized, oh my gosh, you know. She kind of liked him. So he asked her if he could take her out for dinner sometime. I wish I would have captured this conversation on tape, but Sharon told me that on their first date, she didn't want to admit to Bo that she was losing her vision. 
So he took her to one of these fancy restaurants where everyone speaks in soft voices and you could hear the silverware clinking on the dishes. So she opened the menu and pretended to read it. She asked him what he thought was good on the menu. She said she'll never forget what she ordered. It was a beautiful seared tuna steak. They started to eat. Sharon looks down and sees what looks like a slice of avocado. She takes a bite and it turned out to be a fork full of wasabi. It was pretty embarrassing. And after she recovered from that horrific wasabi disaster, they laughed it off and she told him about her vision problems. We did go out on on a date and then other dates and um, had a uh, romantic relationship for a number of months that ended abruptly with me jumping from his moving car, if that tells you anything. <laughs> We were on our way, I'll never forget, it was New Year's Day, and we were on our way to a brunch at uh, friends of his, and he just, he said something that just cut me right to the core, and I said, stop the car, I'm getting out, and he was like, but you won't be able to find your way home because you can't see too good, and it just freaked me out. She swung open the door, and she jumped out of his car. She said the car was moving slowly, but still. So um, I ran all the way home screaming. I remember it was just, it was awful. It just hurt me so bad. And yeah, so that's how it ended. And um, months went by um, where, you know, I never heard from him. And then I got a call from him just out of the blue. And um, he called me and admitted that he felt he was, you know, in love with me and that he really wanted to try again to, you know, approach a relationship and and that he felt like he could um, handle, you know, my disability. I told him that what he said was, um, had, had hurt me so deep to the core that I could not enter that type of relationship again with him, but that I felt I could be a good friend and that perhaps we are always meant to be good friends because we had so much in common and of interest and and like doing a lot of the same things. But it wasn't over. From that moment, Bo and Sharon became like brother and sister. Sharon eventually moved to Mississippi and got married to her husband, David. And Bo eventually left New Mexico to start a new life in Central America. They went their separate ways, but they were never really apart. It's important to describe the bond that these two shared because Bo was about to be wrapped up in an international con artist trap. When Bo got in trouble, even an ocean away, Sharon, his best friend, knew something was wrong. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. After Sharon left New Mexico, Bo stayed behind, but not for long. Bo had become just disenchanted, I think, with Santa Fe. He really wanted to meet a special 
lady, special someone to have in his, his life. In 2004, Bo started researching a few places in the Caribbean and in Central America. He wanted to go to a, a place that was slower, you know, quiet, a place where he could just be and and be somewhat, um, you know, have a, a, a lot of privacy. He was a very private person. He settled on a small chain of islands in Panama called Bocas del Toro, or Bocas del Toro, like the American expats called it. It literally means the mouth of the bull in Spanish. It was perfect. Bo bought three acres of land on one of the larger islands and built a house nestled between the jungle and the ocean. Bo and Sharon spoke on the phone every single day. Initially, he loved it. You know, he, he and was often telling me that I needed to come and visit and, and see the place. And I didn't uh, feel really confident at the time traveling alone to, to Panama. Bocas del Toro was a perfect place for someone who wanted to get away from it all. A place to leave it all behind. Like run away from the law or ditch your ex-wife. It was an archipelago where you can buy a private island in the bay that's only accessible by boat for as little as $25,000. It seems too good to be true, and as you can imagine, the word got out quick, and building your dream home on a private island drew many U.S. expats. And with the gringos came a bunch of real estate scammers. You could buy a piece of land and had already sold it and then suddenly, people were claiming to be the owner. But luckily for Bo Eisler, he had the deed to his property, and he was good to go. Sharon and Bo kept in touch. For the most part, I mean, we spoke a couple times a week, you know? I mean, I knew about his friends, and, you know, he, I knew about all his friends and what he was doing and where he was going on a, on a regular basis. By 2009... Only a few years after building his dream home on a perfect tropical island, Bo decided that Bocas del Toro was not for him. Yeah, he he got disenchanted with, you know, the sincerity of some of the ladies he was dating. And, and you know, he was a gringo, right? Uh, with money. And uh, so that was, he, he became very lonely. Bo told Sharon that he wanted out and he wanted to move to Mississippi to be closer to her. I was single at the time and we would be housemates here. I, you know, have a large home, as you know, and, and there was plenty of room for him to have his privacy. And so he put his house on the market. And eventually, a man going by the name of Bill Cortez and his wife, Laura Reese, were interested in buying the property. Bill Cortez was most commonly referred to as Wild Bill. We'll get to more about him in a minute. But for now, all we need to know is that he's interested in buying Bo's house. The night before, I think it was, um, that they would sign the papers, he called and um, was very upset and said, well, this couple approached me to, to buy the house. And I get a call from this guy tonight saying that they're going to get a divorce and that the deal's off. The deal was on. And then it was off. And then it was back on. Finally... Wild Bill and his wife, Laura Reese, agreed to purchase the house for $400,000. That was an exceptionally generous offer. So, um, that was the last time I talked with him, I think. Bo 
was never seen again. You know, for me, as I know that my friend disappeared, I didn't know it at that time, but I, I just felt like he was so upset about, you know, what was ha- what had happened that he needed space. You know, um, I respected Bo's silence, uh, times where I may not have heard from him, um, but it wouldn't, wouldn't be long that I would, um, that he would call me and tell me what he was up to or where he went or, you know, this kind of thing. But this time, you know, I didn't, I didn't hear from him again. So did the deal fall through or did the Cortez couple buy the property? And why would Bo disappear just like that? It didn't make any sense. Something was wrong. The painters showed up um, the next morning to uh, to work on the house. And that's when Wild Bill was sitting in the kitchen and, and yelled at them to, you know, to leave and that he had bought the house and, and that, you know, he didn't need them. So who is this Wild Bill? Where did he come from? And did he really purchase Bo's house? Wild Bill, whose real name was William Hobart, had long, blonde, curly hair and frequently wore a Viking helmet. He was six feet tall and looked like one of those guys at the gym who was pumped up on steroids. Wild Bill was also the owner of a local bar he liked to call the Jolly Roger Social Club. The bar, which sat off the side of his island property, was a down and dirty watering hole known for loud parties and the occasional drug use. The decor was simple. Wild Bill flew a flag with skull and bones and its model was only 90% of our members survive. Look, it was a trashy place where local expats could play poker and have a reliably good time. The Jolly Roger Social Club was not exactly a cash cow either. If Wild Bill and his wife Laura Reese were lucky, they could probably make 50 bucks in profit on a good weekend. But let's back up a little bit. How exactly did Wild Bill end up with such a large property to begin with? Three years earlier, Wild Bill and his wife claimed they bought their 45-acre property from a family called the Browns. Michael Brown and his wife Nan lived there with their teenage son, Watson. When Michael Brown posted the house on the market, he got a call from Wild Bill, and they agreed to meet. The Browns' property sat at the edge of the peninsula and was only accessible by boat. It was reported that Michael Brown traveled by boat to pick up Wild Bill so they could work out the real estate deal. As the story goes, Wild Bill stayed with the Browns for about three days, long enough to gain their confidence. According to Wild Bill, on the last night of his visit, Michael Brown signed over the property to him. Wild Bill explains that the Brown family handed him the keys and quickly moved away. When people ask Wild Bill about the Browns, he simply replied that they left Bocas del Toro and didn't leave a forwarding address. The Brown family was gone. Hmm. Wild Bill wasted no time. He and his wife, Laura Reese, quickly moved in and set up a bar at the end of the property, the infamous Jolly Roger Social Club. One of the bar's regular patron was Cher Hughes, a businesswoman from Florida. 
Cher had recently split from her husband and lived alone in their dream home just a mile away from the Jolly Roger Social Club. Despite her cheerful appearance, Cher's family said that she was lonely out in Panama all by herself. She also started to fear for her safety because there were two or three break-ins on her property, and it appeared as if someone was trying to force open her filing cabinet. Cher Hughes and Wild Bill were close friends, so when she decided it was time to sell her property, she went over to Wild Bill's house to discuss the sale. Later that afternoon, two local men who were paid to cut the grass and maintain the property say they saw Wild Bill and Cher leaving on a boat together at the old Brown family property. Cher was never seen again. So let me get this straight. Either Wild Bill is a real estate genius or something is terribly wrong here. Where is Bo Eisler? Where are the Browns? Where is Cher Hughes? You're telling me all of them skipped town after selling Wild Bill their dream homes? Pretty soon, people started to worry about Cher's whereabouts. She was always around. Where could she possibly be? Cher's friend, who was expecting to meet her the day after she sold Wild Bill the property, never heard back from Cher. Her friend tried calling her cell phone, but no answer. A friend named Miguel Angel got on a boat and drove to Cher's house, only to find Laura Reese, Wild Bill's wife. She told him to get off her property because it was her property now. She told him that Cher got sick and moved to Panama City. But that's when Miguel Angel heard a whimpering. It was Cher's two dogs. Something was wrong. Cher would never leave her dogs behind. But later that day, friends received a text from Cher. It read, I'm fine, don't worry about me. I met a guy and went off on a sailboat with him. Hmm. What about the Brown family? Did anyone even notice they were missing? Michael Brown's older children, who didn't live in Bocas del Toro, started to get worried. Watson, their teenage son, stopped writing emails to his half-sister and brother. Also, Michael Brown's financial manager noticed that money was being withdrawn from the Browns' account in Bocas del Toro. But despite all this, the Browns were clearly gone, and nobody, nobody filed a missing persons report. So back to Sharon McConnell Dickerson. When did she realize that Bo Eisler could be in trouble? I suspect he was missing a couple months. You know, I figured "Mm, something's wrong. And, uh, you know, I was getting his uh, credit card statements. And I felt like if he was traveling, that there'd be something on there, you know. And payments, yeah, and there was no activity. And Bo... um, paid off his uh, his credit card bills, but there wasn't any any activity at all in them. Sharon started making phone calls. I had heard through the grapevine that he had sold his house, and and this this couldn't have been true because I would have heard about it. Suddenly, she remembered the name of Bo Eisler's real estate agent. He kept mentioning the name Walter Kawano, so she tracked him down. You know, Walter would be the one that I would. Uh, can later convince um, and plead to go make a missing persons report because I couldn't f- and I didn't want to fly to Panama and 
and do that. I, I felt fearful of going to that place. At this point, Sharon is really worried, so she calls Bo's attorney in Boca, Daniel Anaya. Anaya happily gave Sharon the name and cell phone number of the owner of Bo Eisler's house, William Hobart. You know, Wild Bill. I did call the number, and um, there was no answer, and I left a message that was friendly. You know, um, hey, you know, I heard that you bought my friend Bo's house, and I just wanted to, um, I hadn't heard from him, and, you know, just wondered, um, you know, if, uh, if you knew where he went and where he moved, and please give me a call. And then I waited and waited, you know, no response. I called him back a second time and said, I really need for you to call me. Something's wrong. You know, please, please call me. Um, The last time I called Wild Bill, um, I left a a very, uh, well, a threatening message and said, I know that you did not buy my friend's house. And um, if you, if you don't call me back, um, I'm going to call um, the local police and then I'm going to call the U.S. Embassy in Panama and I hung up and then I immediately called the U.S. Embassy and told my story there to someone and they put me on hold and came back on the line and said my supervisor is allowing me to share some information with you about another missing persons report on the same island and I I think you and the family should be in touch with each other and that's when he told me um, that Cher Hughes was missing and that her niece Mary Whitmire had reported you know her suspicion and that she knew something was very wrong and then you call and say the same name Bill Cortez because she had said Bill Cortez had purchased supposedly purchased Cher's property. And then I tell them the same name, a person has so-called, you know, purchased Bo's property. And he said, so now they were going to, you know, begin investigating. The local media published missing posters of Bo and Cher Hughes, asking readers to be on alert. The walls were closing in on them. And just like that, Wild Bill and his wife, Laura Reese slipped out of Boca del Toro. After obtaining a search warrant, Panamanian detectives raided the old Brown family property. Once inside, they found Cher's passport, checkbook, credit cards, purse, and cell phone. The two local workers who worked on the property told police that Wild Bill asked them to dig two holes in the jungle behind the property. They said that Wild Bill instructed them to dig each hole six feet long and five feet deep. He told them that it was to bury trash. Police started digging in, and almost immediately, they uncovered a blue plastic tarp. I'll save you the grisly details, but it was the body of Cher Hughes. Then police found another grave a few yards behind. This was most likely Bo Eisler. Eventually, they found three more graves. One for Michael Brown, his wife, and his teenage son, Watson. Wild Bill and Laura Reese were on the run. 
So who the hell are these people, and where did they come from? This can't possibly be their first run-in with the law. In 2005, he wasn't known as Wild Bill. He was 26-year-old William Hobart, just two years before moving to Panama and killing the entire Brown family, just to steal their house. William Hobart lived in a small town in North Carolina called Forest City. He opened up a bookstore on Main Street. What kind of bookstore? Why, a white supremacist bookstore. He called it Southern National Patriots. William Hobart would stand outside the store shouting into a megaphone and handing out flyers that read, Are you tired of being a second-class citizen in a country your father built for you? Are you sick of the ethnic and cultural cleansing of our white Southern children by MTV and rap music? They're breeding us out. They're taxing us to death. They're removing our jobs. Here's William Hobart justifying his casual racism. Our culture, we feel, is the pinnacle of achievement in Western society and has been destroyed for the last 100 years or so. Uh, At this point in his life, William Hobart acted nothing like Wild Bill from Bocas del Toro. Wild Bill had long, curly blonde hair, spoke Spanish, liked to party. William Hobart, on the other hand, was angry and had a shaved head weighed more than 240 pounds, and had a swastika tattoo on his back and a cross on his left arm with the words Aryan pride. Eventually, Holbert closed down his racist Barnes & Noble and moved across the state to the North Carolina coast. Here, he and Laura Reese cooked up their first con artist scheme. They pretty much forged a deed to an empty beach house and called a developer looking for houses to flip. Holbert told the developer he needed to sell the house quick and was willing to sell it below market value. Holbert took the man's deposit of $200,000 and took off running with the cash. Months later, the real owner of that beach house showed up, only to find her house being renovated by a man who claimed to own it. By this time, everyone figured out they were scammed, and William Holbert and Laura Reese were gone. They headed west in a stolen car with fake IDs and were traveling from state to state. While crossing Wyoming, they were stopped by a highway patrolman. When the trooper walked back to his car to run their license, he found their alias in the system and figured out that they were wanted in North Carolina. But by the time he figured that out, Holbert hit the gas and ran off. This is actual audio from the trooper's dash cam. You should see this video. Holbert and Reese were driving an SUV in a high-speed chase. The road went on forever without any obvious exit. So what did Holbert do? He swerved right and started driving straight up a hill. I mean, there was no way that this state trooper could go after him. He got away. Can you believe that? Holbert and his wife, Laura Reese, had no place to hide. So they packed up their bags, most likely with $200,000 they stole from the beach house, and hopped on a cruise and never stepped foot in America again. Five years later and five corpses buried in their stolen Panamanian property, Wild Bill and Laura Reese were on the run again. This time, their pictures were all over local TV and newspapers They were spotted in a small town in Costa Rica. Now they're running from the FBI and Interpol. 
Wild Bill and Laura Reese stole the powerboat and headed north to Nicaragua. They crossed the Nicaraguan border, but they were greeted by police with machine guns and taken into custody. When investigators asked Wild Bill why he killed his victims, he said, it gives me no pleasure to kill people. It's a difficult decision to make and it's difficult to do. He described asking Michael Brown to show him around the property. That's when he shot him in the back of the head. Then he called Michael Brown's unsuspecting teenage son over and shot him the same exact way. Then Wild Bill went around the property and shot the wife, Nan Brown. To make matters worse, while talking to investigators, Wild Bill couldn't even remember the kid's name. As for Bo Eisler, Wild Bill decided to kill him because he thought Bo was hiding from the law. He figured no one would ever come looking for him. Now, Wild Bill and Laura Reese were the proud owners of two properties in Bocas del Toro. And his last victim, Cher Hughes, died because Wild Bill felt that she was strung up on drugs and had lost her desire to live. So, he did her a favor and killed her and took her possessions. And he actually considered Cher a friend. He says that his wife, Laura Reese, had nothing to do with any of the murders. All she knew was that she magically had a new house and the family that lived in it magically disappeared. Solid defense. William Hobart also admitted to killing one other person during his time in Boca. But this time, he said it was an accident and he didn't even steal his property. Hmm. Both Wild Bill and Laura Reese are behind bars sitting in a Panamanian prison. William Hobart was sentenced to 47 years, and his wife, Laura Reese, got 26 years for her involvement in the murders. But don't worry, Wild Bill found Jesus, and he's going by a new name these days. Meet Brother William Hobart. In early 2012, I, Brother William Dathan Hobart, an inmate, began Panama Prison Ministries with the help of a sparse few churches and individuals in the United States. When salvation from Jesus Christ comes to one, even such so, one so vile as myself, it is so powerful that even the worst sinners become instruments of God. He explains that he was hired by a cartel kingpin to carry out the murders. I'm charged with various homicides and organized crime. I was made infamous after my arrest for being the chief collector and punisher for a powerful international cartel. For 15 years between 1995 and 2010, I operated as an emissary of evil and death. First as leader of a private right-wing militia in the United States, and then as an international cartel collector, and ultimately as executioner of said international cartel. So, you can imagine, when Sharon McConnell Dickerson told me her story about Bo Eisler, I just couldn't believe it. Man, it was, it's one of the most traumatic um, events in my life that I've gone through, is uh, how, how I lost a friend like that, and, uh, and months and months of uh, worry and research and trying to connect and and not being able to access the internet because I'm blind. Um, so I, this was all phone calls and just, whew, man, 
High drama. Sharon recalls one of her last conversations with Bo. And um, we had talked about me coming down and get on the plane and, you know, go to Miami. Then you come here. It's no problem. And um, and uh, if I had gone on that trip for my birthday, um, I would have been there the night and probably that he was murdered. And I probably would have been been murdered, too. Next time on Pretend Radio. I give you what you want. This guy heard that if you hijack a plane, the pilot will give you a half a million dollars. And I heard a, a news uh, spot uh, on one of the Detroit radio stations. And what they said was uh, all these skyjackings that are happening, uh, they can solve the problem if they just give everybody uh, or, or get a ticket. They can give them 500000 bucks, and these guys won't be taking these planes. And when I heard that, I said, oh, my God. And I laughed like hell. You know, Jim, that wouldn't be a bad way to uh, make some quick money. Just uh, get uh, get a ticket, uh, get on a plane, and uh, get some parachutes and bail out. And he almost got away with it. This story is freaking nuts. Next time on Pretend Radio. There's a lot I didn't cover on this episode. This story was largely based on the reportings of author Nick Foster. He traveled to Panama and covered the story like no one else. He even had an in-prison interview with Wild Bill himself. So if you'd like to know more about this story, you should check out his book titled Jolly Roger Social Club. I read the whole thing in a few settings. It's so good. You should check it out. Also, I really want to thank everyone who has left a review on iTunes. You have no idea how much that helps people find the show. In fact, if you want to support Pretend Radio, the most effective thing you can do is tell a friend. But also, I want to thank our Patreon supporters, like Kendra Hurst, who dropped some money in the tip jar. You guys are pretty amazing. Also, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but have you ordered your Pretend Radio t-shirt? You can find both the Patreon link and the swag by visiting pretendradio.org. Also, our theme music was composed by friend of the show, Joe Basile, with thechicken.net. Joe writes original scores for videos, podcasts, anything, really. He's fantastic. Go check him out. Hey guys, it's Melissa and Mandy with the Moms and Murder podcast. We're a true crime podcast that's sure to make you laugh without compromising the seriousness of the content. Despite our name, we aren't just for the moms. Our show is for all the Diet Coke drinking, chicken loving, Dateline watching people in your life. Come for the murder and stay for the witty humor and pop culture references. And you never know, you may even hear from some of your favorite names in the world of true crime. Like Dateline's Josh Mankiewicz. Do you have a preference on what we call you, Josh Mankiewicz, Manx, Sir Manx a lot? Uh, I don't hear Sir, Sir Manx a lot quite as often as I. <laughs> I can make it happen for you. Like I will to, make it happen. Broken Homicide's Derek Lavasser. Are you tearing up on me? I saw you waiting. <laughs> so beautiful, everything you're saying. <laughs> or even America's sweetheart, Ali Sweeney. The neighbors suggested that perhaps Kathleen had been attacked by 
an owl. The owl theory um, that Melissa and Allie Sweeney believe. Again, so judgy. (laughs) Check out Moms and Murder anywhere podcasts are found. Murder. The unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another. A short, simple definition of a word that we're all familiar with. For most of us, murder is just that, a word or a definition that has no impact on our lives. But to some people, murder is much more than that. It's real. It's personal because they've lost a loved one to murder. And I want to share their stories with you. My name is Mike Morford and some of you may know me as co-host of the true crime podcast Criminology. I'd like to invite you to check out my new podcast, The Murder in My Family. In each episode, I'll recount a single murder case and talk one-on-one with the family members of these victims to see how these tragic crimes changed their lives and where their search for justice has taken them since. Starting in July of 2018, you can find and subscribe to The Murder in My Family on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll join me for The Murder in My Family. Creative Babble.